Well, a year ago at this time, as Christmas was approaching, uh, we were still finishing up the book of Luke, which seems like a long time ago, um, to me at least. But uh, we had come to chapter 24, and we were at the story of the disciples on the road to Emmaus, if you remember that story there. Um, After Jesus' crucifixion and his resurrection, these disciples are heading from Jerusalem up to Emmaus, and they're debating with each other about what's gone on, trying to make sense of everything. They'd heard a report about the tomb being empty, and Jesus appears to them. They don't recognize him. They're kept from recognizing him initially, and they're surprised he doesn't know what happened in Jerusalem, what they're talking about. So they, uh, so he, he asks them, and they proceed to tell them all about Jesus, and, and, and they, have, they, they say these words as they are telling him what happened and how their leaders had delivered him up to be crucified. And they say, but we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. We had hoped he was the one to redeem Israel. They were wrestling with what appeared to be a misplaced hope. And I commented, as we went through that a year ago, um, that this idea of a misplaced hope in Christ seems to be an apt description of our society's general view towards Christianity, that the Christian hope, the Christian worldview, uh, was something that we in the West had tried. We had placed some hope in Christianity, in Christ, in that worldview, um, but, uh, but it's let us down. And that's a thing of the past, and it's time now to move on. And uh, a year later, I think it's safe to say that uh, what has happened since then in 2020 has really just confirmed this in a number of ways. Um, the events of the last year have revealed, I say revealed, not caused, but they have revealed that we are living in a society with no real foundation under us, no real hope at all. Uh, there are many today who would propose a, a new hope, uh, perhaps a new foundation for us, um, but such views are steeped in Atheism, and I think maybe more appropriately for many, it's a a new type of paganism, a neo-paganism. And as Christians, we know that this kind of thinking will only lead to greater evil, will only lead to greater harm of mankind. And as this continues, uh, pressure builds on Christians to cave into this, to conform to the new paganism. And by that, I just mean... You know, what, what Paul talks about in Romans 1 about uh, mankind, you know, uh, descending into this place where we worship created things rather than God, the creator. And this is on the rise. This is everywhere today. Uh, it's a greater sin to hurt the earth than to kill a baby in the womb and so on. And we manif- it manifests in many different ways. But as we come to this time of year, when there's this talk, you know, even in the church, this talk of the baby Jesus being born in a manger, it's Christmas time, and for the most part, we know our, our, the world has moved on from Jesus, even at Christmas time. But even within the church, there's talk of the baby Jesus being born in the manger, and yet often this is presented with kind of silly depictions of Jesus. Uh, weak presentations of him and of this birth um, with, with vague notions of, of peace on earth, not really explained or fleshed out. 
And the birth of Jesus to, to many who, who have heard this many times, and okay, peace, sure, sounds nice. To many, this is little more, this story of Jesus' birth, little more than folklore representing wishful thinking. Uh, yes, we, we wish there would be peace on earth. It's just not materializing. And so in the end, for many, they conclude it's completely irrelevant and that the story of this baby born in a manger is just really out of touch with present needs in society. And so I think we and the world need some reminders of who this Jesus is and what this event is really about as this baby is born in a manger. We need reminders of who Jesus is. And I say not just who he was, but who he is, who he presently and currently is. And so to do this, I invite you to turn to John 1 with me. And we're going to read John 1, 1 to 18. And we're going to spend our, the rest of our time this afternoon in these verses. So John chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. The Apostle John writes, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God, whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light, that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. So as we work through this, there's obviously a lot in this text, and so we're going to be just um, doing a fairly cursory overview here. But I want to look at three reminders, three important reminders that I think I, I want to encourage you with as you think about Christ and you think about his incarnation and coming to earth, as you consider how this is received in our world today, and three reminders that are important that we as Christians and as the church keep before the unbelieving world. And the first one is that Jesus is indeed God. Jesus is indeed God. This is, of course, Christianity 101. This is basic in many ways, yet it is so vitally important to not only affirm this in word, but to have it rooted in your soul. This is the central concept in these opening verses and is arguably the central thesis to the Gospel of John. But as he begins it, he says here, 
In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. So as John opens up his gospel here, he points us to some important realities about Jesus. And the first one is his eternality. He's talking about his divinity. He speaks of his eternality. John starts off with the words that remind us of Genesis 1.1, where in Genesis we read, In the beginning, God created. And John says here, In the beginning was the Word. This being, the Word, was in the beginning. He was not a created being. He just was already at the start of creation. That's what we think of as we think of in the beginning, God, before anything's created, just in the beginning, God. That's where it all begins, with God eternally existing. And John is telling us here, in the beginning was the Word. John also mentions that with Jesus there is distinction from God, and he also tells us there's oneness with God. So John tells us the Word was with God. That tells us there's some sort of distinction he's making here. And yet he also tells us the word was God, revealing oneness. This distinction between the word and God is explained throughout the Gospel of John as a distinction of persons. The word, Jesus, is the Son and he is distinct from the Father. We have here the doctrine of the Trinity. We see in verse 14 even, where John tells us there, if you look down, that Jesus, he's talking about Jesus, the only begotten Son from the Father. The distinction is Father and Son. It's a distinction in person. And yet there's oneness as well. Jesus is indeed God. Jesus himself would declare that he was one with the Father, and his opponents rightly understood in chapter 5, verse 18, that his claims of being the only begotten Son was, this was a claim of equality with God. So for all that his opponents misunderstood about him, they did understand this claim rightly. And in John 5, they're very upset and want to kill him because he's claiming to be equal with God as he claims to be the only begotten Son. And of course, he explicitly says the word was God here in, in John 1. Moreover, down in verse 18, it says that Jesus is the only God who is at the Father's side. And importantly, with all of this, John tells us, being God, that Jesus is the Creator. He declares in verse 2, all things were made through Him, and, just to be extra clear about this, he adds, without Him was not anything made that was made. So some might say, well, maybe Jesus was just Sure, he was existent, but he was maybe just a, a created being, some sort of lesser God or something like that. But John is making it very clear here that all things were made through him. And to be again, to be extra clear, without him was not anything made that was made. Everything that was made was made through him. He's not a created being. We've seen a similar statement of Jesus and all things being created through him in Colossians 1. If you remember verses 15 to 20, Jesus is not a created being. He is the one through whom creation was formed. 
God spoke in Genesis 1 in the beginning, and through the Son, the eternal word, all things were created. It is this eternal word then, the eternal Son, the creator of everyone and everything, who in verse 14, we're told, became flesh and dwelt among us. The baby in the manger is the eternal word of God who took to himself a human nature. As the Christmas hymn says, veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. He's the incarnate deity. Jesus lowered himself, emptied himself by adding to himself a human nature, to his divine nature, and stepped into his own creation. That Jesus is God is a truth that matters every hour of every day, in every year, no matter where you live, any part of the world, any land. It matters now and it always has. And the implications of this are many. The fact that Jesus is God. We live in a society with really no mooring, no grounding, no anchor. This is not unique to us, nor is it a new reality here. The foundations of Western civilization have been under assault and crumbling for many, many years. I think this is just becoming more and more evident all the time. It reveals itself in many ways. Our civil discourse is a mess. We cannot agree on whether words have any essential meaning. We cannot agree if facts really matter. We can't agree on what the basis of truth is or if truth is even a thing. We live in a time when really there's no one or nothing higher than government to appeal to. And as in our time, the government exercises unprecedented power, and it is unprecedented power in our country at least, there's nowhere for people to turn. What foundation does anyone have for saying any of it's wrong or any of it's right? Even those who instinctively know that the government shouldn't be just doing away with our charter rights, who appeal to the charter to defend their rights, Many of them still don't have a worldview that will substantiate why freedoms even ought to be in place in the first place. Just one example of this, uh, one of the organizers of the Freedom March here in Weyburn, who has said many good things, who I'd agree with on many of the things that I've seen said by this individual, nevertheless on Facebook had posted something and then got into a back and forth, a little spat with somebody, which I know you have a hard time believing, but it occurred. And as they were back and forth and disagreeing, this individual said, well, that's your truth, and this is mine. This this kind of reasoning, this kind of relativism, just does not stand. It does not work. It is not logical. It leaves people without any true guide or any measuring stick for anything in life. And most certainly, society cannot be built on such a shaky foundation. And so we're reminded that even some that we would have important things in common with outside of the walls of the church are nevertheless adrift where it matters most. No solid source of truth. 
And we're reminded here in John, Jesus is the Word. He is God. He sets the standard of truth. There is truth. You and I need not apologize for this. The pressure is to apologize for this. It's arrogant to say these things or to believe these things. We need not apologize. We must not. But must continually stand on the foundation of God who has spoken and particularly in and through His Son who as verse 18 says has made Him known. Has made God known. Jesus has revealed God. He can be known. The world needs to know the Lordship of Jesus. He is not some simply some weak baby to be dismissed. Yes, he came in the form of a helpless babe, but it was to bring about redemption as we will get to. But he is raised from the dead, he is exalted, he is God, and he is the one to whom mankind will give an account. All authority on heaven and on earth is his. This is Jesus. And so he cannot be discounted as simply irrelevant. A second reminder, Jesus is indeed God, but Jesus is often reviled. He is often reviled. To reject and oppose Jesus is a troubling yet common reality. Ever since the fall of Adam into sin, sinners have despised God. In our day when we're told that to think that man is inherently good... It is difficult to receive this truth that man would reject Jesus even if they met him in person. Again, the dominant thinking is man is essentially good. And the problems that we have really find their root in systems, in forms of government, in economics, These are the other things that make society bad, though man is essentially good. And if we could just maybe get the right system in place, then all would be well. Yet this is not what the Bible teaches. It is Scripture's clear testimony that man is sinful and depraved and is set against his creator. And this has been demonstrated over and over throughout the ages And John wastes no time making this point at the outset of his gospel, a point that he'll develop throughout the whole book. In verse 4, which we'll come back to, it says there, He is life and light, Jesus is. And in verse 5, that this light is shining in the darkness. Jesus came bringing salvation and truth, life and light, shining this into darkness. And then in verses 6 to 8, we're told that John the Baptist was a messenger. He was a witness to that light. He preached Christ into the darkness, called on people to repent and prepare because this one is coming who's greater than him, whose sandals he's unworthy to untie. Then in verse 9 we read, The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. Amazingly, the creator of all things, who exists outside of creation, creates it. Miraculously, this is the miracle of the incarnation. 
takes flesh to himself and enters into his creation. And in some ways, perhaps more stunning, is that his creation, when he did this, did not recognize him, did not know him, did not recognize the truth of the divine creator when he spoke, did not hear the voice of their own creator. Such was and is the depravity of man. He speaks the truth and they want to kill him. Verse 11 says, he came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. So, it's one thing for the world at large, the Gentile nations perhaps, to not know Jesus, not recognize the voice of their creator. But one might assume or think that Israel would recognize him, would know him. After all, to them belongs the covenants of promise. To them belong the oracles of God, the scriptures. They've had prophets sent to them, a long history. They've been the Lord's people. Yet John says they did not receive him either. We might find that shocking. And it certainly is shameful. But if you know your Old Testament, it really isn't that surprising. You've read the book of Kings, have you not? Throughout the scriptures, even the Lord's own people, even the nation of Israel, consistently rejected him. As God would raise up and send prophets and they would stand there and say, thus says the Lord, so often they would reject, they would revile it, and they would fight against it persecuting and even killing the prophets. Jesus himself told a parable about this vineyard owner who goes away and sends servants to collect the fruit when it's time and they shamefully treat these servants and send them away with nothing and finally I'll send my son, the heir, and and they'll respect him. But what do they do? They kill him. They say, this is the heir. Let's seize him, kill him, and then all of this will be ours. Jesus instructing us, instructing his disciples, this is what's happening now. The son is here and they're, they won't, they're going to kill him. In John 5.20, as Jesus is talking with his own, with the Pharisees, with the Jews, he says, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life and it is they that bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. This is the depravity of man. He stands there. I am life. And they refuse to come. Jesus went so far as to tell the Pharisees in John 8 that they were not, in fact, children of Abraham. Their claim to be good to go with God because they descend from Abraham is false. You're not a child of Abraham. If you were, you would believe that I am he, since he spoke of me. In fact, who these people were, these Pharisees, was children of their real father, the devil. So Jesus tells them. And then they in turn accuse him of being a demon-possessed Samaritan. And the chapter ends with the Pharisees picking up stones to slay him for claiming to be Yahweh, for claiming to be I am. When he says, before Abraham was, I am. In John 3, verse 18 following, it says, whoever believes in him 
Jesus, is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Do you hear the voice of Jesus? Everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. Jesus is commonly and often reviled and opposed. Of course, his own people would call for his crucifixion, gladly saying his blood be on us and our children. Of course, we know Jesus would lay down his life of his own accord, but this was the rejection of the Messiah. As we continue in these days to proclaim Christ and to stand upon the truth of his word, there's no guarantees about the outcome. We simply do not know what will become of our present country. We don't know how our neighbors will respond. We don't know if revival awaits. I think we can and ought to pray for such things. We don't know if that will be what the Lord does or if we will see a further descent into wickedness all around us. Yet it should not come as a surprise that when Christ is proclaimed, that men and women reject him and often oppose him and revile him. Whether that takes vicious form or, or even the callous sort of dismissal. None of this should be a surprise to you. The Bible teaches us he is the rock of offense and the stone of stumbling. He is a stumbling block for Jews and he's folly to Gentiles. I don't think we should aid people in thinking that a baby in a manger is silly by giving silly explanations or putting up silly pictures of it. But... We ought not to be surprised when even you give the most full-throated and solid, sound exposition of Scripture of the glory of Jesus Christ, if still the wise of this world just dismiss it as folly. The nations continue to rage. The peoples continue to plot in vain. The kings of the earth still set themselves, and the rulers continue to take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. Psalm 2, still very much in effect. This is important for us to know, to remind ourselves, that we might prepare for this. Rejection of Christ will come. And this does not mean that the word of God is untrue. The Lord does not rule by democracy. He does not rule by popular opinion or mob mentality. He doesn't run this stuff past independent fact checkers. And so with all of this, this is a, important for you and I to calm 
our souls on this truth. That even where you see him rejected and reviled, the Lord is still the Lord. His word still remains true. And that this present day of scoffing at the Lord Jesus Christ and, and dismissal of his moral law is not unforeseen, nor is it new. It is not the hallmark of an advanced civilization and progress, but rather we know it is the ancient rejection of the Almighty God and His righteousness. This is not new. It is indeed a a regress in the West, certainly. I think it is right to lament it, to, as we have opportunity, resist it, oppose it, speak up, But let us not be surprised as if something strange is happening. The Holy One of Israel came into the world. Creator took on flesh and the world did not know him. His own people, long prepared for this moment, did not receive him. But this brings me to my third and final point. Jesus is often opposed, reviled, but thirdly, Jesus is still Savior. Jesus is still Savior. This never changes. Despite what opposition may come, this never changes. This is why we stay the course. To whom shall we go? Again, jump ahead a few chapters in John to John chapter 6. Various disciples are fleeing Jesus as his teachings get hard. As he's not just giving them this miracles that they desire, they're leaving. He asks the twelve, do you want to go too? And Peter responds, to whom shall we go? Whatever confusion Peter knew at that moment, whatever he didn't understand, he knew Jesus was the Holy One of God and there's no one else to go. Jesus had the words of eternal life. There's nowhere else to turn. This remains true today. For you, there's nowhere else for you to go, for me to go. There's nowhere else to point people to go as we consider those outside of the church. In John 4, John says, In him was life, sorry, it's John 1 verse 4, In him was life, and the life was the light of men. Life and light are two major themes in the Gospel of John. We've already seen that Jesus was the creator of physical life. Yet John is clear that Jesus came Also, or he came so that those who believe in him might have eternal life, spiritual life. Again, we think of John 3.16. But there's many other references to life in John's gospel as well. John 14.6, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. It was true when John, when Jesus said it, when John wrote it, and today. No one comes to the Father except through me. He is the life. John 17, 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Jesus possesses life, and he came to give life. 
and this life is the light of men. This spiritual eternal life comes as sin, ignorance, and darkness are illuminated by truth, truth from Jesus who is the word. It comes as hearts are remade by the power of the Holy Spirit as the gospel is proclaimed and grasped and understood and believed. It comes as souls arise from the sleep of death to walk by the light of truth, having sins exposed and forgiven by God's grace. Again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And again, I have come into the world as light, so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. Here in chapter 1 and verse 5, John says that the light shines in the darkness. There's a switch here to the present tense. In verses 1 through 4, it's in the beginning was, was, were, past things. And now in verse 5, the light shines presently in the darkness. That switch is intentional, I would submit, because John understands that even as he writes the gospel, many, this gospel, many years after the incarnation, many years even after the resurrection and Jesus' ascension, that Jesus still shines in the darkness where the gospel is proclaimed. He says, the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. The darkness indeed rages. People oppose and revile Christ. Yet the day has not completely faded into night. The Lord has always had his people, his remnant, and this continues today. Moreover, while the nations rage and plot, it is the Lord Jesus, risen and glorified, who will yet return victorious and conquering. In, in, in Psalms 2, we're reminded, as nations rage and there's plotting and scheming, even as they sought to take the life of Jesus, God's response, he laughs in derision and sets his king in Mount Zion. The darkness has not and will not overcome the light. Jesus remains the only Savior even now. Of course, the incarnate word, Jesus would go on in his earthly ministry and life to be crucified, and it might seem like darkness had overcome the light in that moment. And even I think it's possible, John, being very aware of this, You know, the apparent weakness of a crucified Savior wants to be clear right up front that the darkness has not overcome the light. Even as he writes later in the first century and Christians have been persecuted, Jesus yet remains light shining in the darkness. And darkness will not win. Even the crucifixion, part of God's plan to save. As Jesus himself said, he, the good shepherd, would lay down his life willingly for his sheep. No one takes Jesus' life from him. He's coming to offer it willingly. Even you remember he tells Pilate, you would have no authority over me if God hadn't granted it to you. At any moment, he could have summoned angels and they'd come to his rescue and it all would have been over. He laid down his life willingly for his sheep as God's plan to save sinners. 
verses 9 to 11, which we read earlier, they speak of creation not knowing Christ, his own not receiving him. But then in verse 12, it reads, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So yes, there are those who oppose and rage against God, against the Lord, against Christ. But for those who do receive him, Jesus is salvation. He gives the right to become children of God. No longer children of wrath under God's wrath and just judgment for sin, but children of God, with whom he is pleased, part of his family. This right is given to those who receive him. And such people are also described here as being those who believe in his name and who are born of God. Jesus is received by faith. Jesus is received by believing in him. John wrote his whole gospel with this aim in mind. He talks in chapter 20 about the many different things Jesus did. He adds in verse 31, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. One receives life by faith. And faith is only ultimately possible by a sovereign work of God, regenerating, overcoming the hearts of dead and depraved sinners, which is what being born of God and not of the will of man and so on is referring to. And Jesus develops this uh, in uh, chapter 3 when he speaks with Nicodemus, speaking of the need to be born again. Clear that this is a sovereign work of God by the Spirit. The Gospel of John really develops God's sovereign role in saving sinners in numerous places throughout it. Sinners are as Lazarus in the grave, dead in trespasses, in need of the powerful voice of Christ standing outside, summoning us to life, that we might arise from the sleep of death and walk in newness of life, received by faith, believing and trusting in Christ. There is no other hope of salvation. There is no other light. There is no other life. There's nowhere else to turn. It doesn't matter what year it is or where we live or what. There is one hope for mankind, and it is the Lord Jesus Christ, whom John says in verse 14 is full of grace and truth. He came as a baby not to make us feel good or have some sort of warm sensation inside of us this time of year. He came and he dwelt among us that he might purchase salvation by dying on the cross in the place of sinners, rising from the dead to justify the ungodly. He died so that all whom the Father gives to him might be rescued out of this world of sin and moral chaos and be forgiven of the sins that that individual, you as an individual, have committed against Almighty God. This was, is, remains the only way for man to be forgiven. If there was another way, God would not have sent his son. But he did. Salvation is secured 
There is right to become children of God for all who believe in Christ Jesus. In a day when there is so much confusion, when man looks to the government to provide all of his needs, to save him even from death, we must preach the lordship of Christ, hold fast to it, hold it forth to others. We preach the lordship of Christ as the one to whom every person will give account, under whose condemnation every son of Adam stands because of our sins. And we trumpet the glory of Christ who also says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. And as Jesus then turned and asked Martha, we ask to others, I ask to you, do you believe this? This is the crucial question. Do you believe this? That those who believe in Christ, trust in him, will be forgiven, granted eternal life, pardoned in God's court. This is the saving response to the gospel, to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, to see your need of him, to rest all your hope of salvation upon him. Confess your sins to him, to forsake your own righteousness, your own sense of goodness, to instead be found in Christ, clothed in his righteousness that he gives you as a gift of his grace, again, to those who believe in him. Lockdown or no lockdown, healthy or ill, free to come and go as we please or enslaved to the worst of tyrants, the needs of your neighbors and of you remains the same. The ultimate need of your neighbors remains the same. The message of the church remains the same. That your sins are great, that God is holy, that nothing escapes his knowledge that you will stand before him to give an account and that this is bad news for those who will stand before him without a mediator. And yet there is good news, there is gospel that the Son of God has indeed come in the form of man. He has come in the flesh. He has taken the requirements of his people upon himself, lived a perfectly righteous life, and then taken the sins of his people upon himself on the cross, and he has died, he has taken upon himself the wrath of God for the sins of his people, and he has drank that cup down so that there's no wrath left for those in Christ. God, therefore, can be just and forgive sinners. Because justice has been satisfied as Jesus died for sinners. And so our message is to trust in Jesus today. Lest you perish in your sins and face the fury of God on your own without the one righteous mediator. We and everyone cannot afford to underestimate the baby in the manger. And let us brothers and sisters, not be found in despair as man flees to false gods, as he flees to other helpers to try to preserve their life and save them. As we have opportunity, let us shine the light of Christ by sharing this gospel. Let us join with John the Baptist 
Though we are not prophets like him, we are not half as great as he was, we likewise do bear witness as a church and as his people to the light who has indeed come into the world. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we again are reminded that we are, we, we are sinful. That not one of us measures up to your righteous standard. That you are so holy, we don't, we, we can't even fully grasp and fathom your greatness and your majesty and your perfections and, and, and your attributes. Yet we know enough from your word about you to know that we fall short. And even that, we don't even understand how far short we do fall. Fully. And so we step back and we just declare again, we have no hope besides Christ, but we do have a great hope because you have sent your Son. Father, we praise you that there's salvation in Jesus' name. We thank you for forgiveness of our wretched sins. Father, I pray that we would be renewed with great joy. Father, forgive us for where we have been ashamed of the gospel. I pray that you would strengthen and renew us to be forthright about it, to to share it with others. Father, I thank you that your word is going out from this church in various ways to other people, to family members, to co-workers, to people in this town, to people in Kisby, to folks in Regina, to people in jungles in Peru, all around Saskatchewan. Father, we pray that this would become even more and more our great delight. And in these days, as we are perplexed and frustrated by a great many things, I pray that you would turn our attention again to the greatness of Christ. Father, there's so many things to which we don't have answers, but we do have answers to man's greatest problem, their sin before you. So may we be quick to point people to what we do have, the the gospel. Father, we pray that you would be gracious and kind to people in this time. And even as there is much confusion and floundering and people grasp for truths and for consistency, I pray that you would expose the rotten foundation that many might see their need for Christ, that many might yet see the truths of your word and how glorious they are and stand upon them. Father, we pray that you would send your spirit in powerful ways and draw yet many more to yourself. We pray that you would glorify your son and we ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.